we'll have to start by showing the American people what's truly at stake here. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the Ukraine and Russia have lost about 300,000 men killed in a, less than a year and a half of war. You know, we, we lost 10,000 brave Americans in 20 years of conflict. And the concern is, my concern is that a military that's built on social progressivism and DEI is not going to be a military and it's not going to be a culture that can sustain those kinds of losses if America is ever in, in that kind of situation. And if we don't reclaim the military as an institution that can fight for a worthy cause, even if it means that kind of cost, then the future is very dark for America. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. For a rare joint episode, uh, Nick and I have been uh, across the country from each other. It feels like most of the days that an episode has needed to be taped, but we are back with an old, old friend today. We had on William Tebow, who is the director of the American Military Project at the DC branch of the Claremont Institute. Before we get to that, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast. You can find our ongoing programs. You could sign up for AM Fridays, our summer lunch series on Capitol Hill, meant for interns and junior staff, where we're bringing in the best public policy experts on a constellation of issues to talk about the cutting edge of an America First agenda. Uh, you can find Amcanon, the Coalition of Books, Essays, Podcasts, YouTube videos, and more that we put out, as well as everything else we have cooking. But today, we had on William Tebow, who is the director of the American Military Project at the Center for the American Way of Life. The American Military Project is to systematically expose, evaluate, and eliminate the manifestations of wokeness in the personnel, programs, and policies of the United States military. In doing so, the project will cultivate the philosophy and policy required to remake a military genuinely formed for and committed to the nation's security and defense. William is a veteran of the Heritage Foundation, the American Conservative, and Palantir Technologies. Uh, he is a Catholic husband and father of three, originally from Illinois, who now lives in North Northern Virginia. As a graduate of Fordham University, Will served as an Army Ranger during multiple deployments to the Middle East and has commented on technology policy for the Daily Signal and has appeared on Steve Bannon's War Room and Fox News. He is a dear friend of Nick and I's. Uh, we've uh, gotten to know him and his family over the years. Uh, he is brilliant and knows exactly what needs to be done to tear out root and branch the corruption of the United States military. It was a really informative episode. It was a moving episode. I mean, what do you think about it, Nick? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, very depressing to see uh, how far deep the problem goes, but uh, definitely motivating to uh, create a new class of generals and, uh, and officers to serve in the military. So we'll go now to William Tebow. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast. Srab Nick, thanks for having me. Uh, we always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. And your story, I think, is, is particularly illustrative because it informs a lot of the work that you do today. Tell us that tale. Where did Will Tebow come from? I started as a kid in the suburbs of Chicago who didn't grow up with much in the way of physical rigor or suffering. <laughs> and so I created it through dreams of being a frontline soldier in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. My friend and I would crawl through brush near our houses and see who could detect whom first. And somehow we told ourselves that would be preparation for 
grueling military service to come. Uh, it took me a little bit of time to get there. I, I went to Fordham University. I realized I couldn't pay for college at the height of the financial crisis and joined the Army, the Army RTC program, so I could stay at Fordham. When I graduated, I was an infantry officer in the Army, served in Washington State, tried out and was selected to serve in the 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Benning, Georgia. And as a, as a Ranger, I deployed to Iraq a number of times. Subsequently, and along that way, I met my wife, Michelle, who was also an army officer. Um, she, you know, she would say I'm ROTC scum. She was a West Point graduate. And, uh, before <laughs> so she she's the brains. OK, got it. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Yeah, well, we might get into this, but she's a West Point graduate. Mm. I, I, I was not. And we, she was going to Afghanistan. I deployed to Iraq. And that gave me my first taste of not only what it was like to deploy myself, which <clears> I loved and I could do for the rest of my life, but what it was like to love someone who is deployed, which is, which is a lot harder. We got married and for some mutual truce agreed to leave the army together. And, you know, that, that took about a year, but when we left the army after having our first baby, we moved to Washington DC, uh, a few weeks shy of the start of uh, the great pandemic of 2020. And I was working at a defense technology company in Georgetown and eager to continue my service, to serve an institution that I loved, that being the military, and to do so with great technology. But things started to change for me when the Afghanistan drawdown took place in August of 2021, not because the drawdown was problematic in of itself, but because it revealed 20 years of deception and lies that anyone could have told you was there. Anyone could have observed the House of Cards and explained the Afghan military wouldn't last a few days after the American government left. But somehow we had convinced ourselves around this town that uh, we were building something that could last uh, in Kabul and the surrounding provinces. Uh, the technology company in which I uh, was working was you know, very ingrained throughout that war. But we left the government and the Afghan military collapsed over the course of a weekend. And with it, I think, came a lot of disillusionment for me and for a lot of veterans. And I realized that even if I worked at a company which sought to serve the institutions of our country, it would be fruitless if those institutions were the kinds that could tell lies to the American people for 20 years with no accountability. Everyone who did that still has their jobs. And the rest of us are wondering when the next misadventure will take place. You know, I, so I had a conversation with you, you and, uh, uh, with both of you and figured out the best path forward in conservative politics and through a you know, little bit of a schizophrenic, but a really blessed uh, path. I'm, I'm now working at the Claremont Institute where we have uh, uh, the American Military Project, where we kind of consider what the institution of the American military should look like if it is going to be one that is worthy of the public trust and also capable of winning wars in the future. So tell me a little bit more about that project. What are the inflection points over the last few years that have inspired that more critical assessment of the state of our military. How bad are things? <laughs> I will say all this without any animus towards individuals that I served with and many of whom are still wearing the uniform. I, I think it will be the best the best men I ever knew. I, I for some reason I feel I feel obligated to put that uh, disclaimer out there. But I think the story begins with Bill Clinton's administration. He came into office 
in January of 1993 after having campaigned on the promise to allow homosexuals to serve in the military, which was previously illegal. He, <clears throat> he was inaugurated, and when he got to the White House, what welcomed him were the resignation letters of every Marine Corps general, and I think most Army generals, who were reacting to the his planned uh, rule change that would allow homosexuals to serve. He backed down. Ultimately, the don't ask, don't tell policy would be a political compromise that resulted. But the more meaningful change, perhaps the more meaningful change was the revolution in military personnel affairs that followed from this defiant, I think, moral move of of Marine and Army generals. He started a policy uh, you can call it a policy. I, th- I think it can only be described as that of of making sure the the general officer corps would be one that is ultimately compliant and uh, committed to fulfilling the worldview of liberal internationalism, which I think many would see Bill Clinton as as ushering into our our government writ large after the the fall of the Soviet Union. That's continued. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll talk about two ways in which that's manifested itself that both have to do with military officer professional development. When, uh, you know, the, the, the best and the brightest, as I already alluded to, typically go to our service academies, Navy, West Point, the Air Force Academy in Colorado. Those service academies more closely resemble four-year degree conferring institutions. And we know what, if, what has happened to the university system. Then a military academy during the year. And it, they're good in some ways, but to to put one fine point on it, at West Point, you can minor in diversity and inclusion studies. <laughs> and then the next month after you graduate with with that degree, you're supposed to you know tie your boots tight and, and learn how to lead soldiers in combat. So perhaps you could suggest that there's been an ideological capture of that institution, but it's it's true. The, the, the propensity of uh, liberal arts degrees has grown since the 90s. And uh, the number of uh, non-military professors has also grown at West Point. Uh, and there's been a playbook and it's, it's happened at the military academies. Along the way, you know, for military officers, there are, uh, there, there's now the expectation certain men go to civilian institutions of higher education for uh, master's, even doctorate uh, degrees at not just kind of as nice professional development opportunities, but as gates that merit promotion and accolades for their military service. So it's very typical for the best and brightest who are at, you know, say 10 years in service to go to Johns Hopkins or the Harvard Kennedy School uh, to, or even UNC Chapel Hill to get your MBA. Uh, again, for, for the degree itself, but also because that degree the military's decided means something for a person's potential to lead at higher, you know, higher capacities of, of organizational leadership. I think it's not accidental. And I think the fact there's a conflation between uh, military promotions and the university system is problematic. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot in there. I, I think it's worth talking about how, um, you know, Bill Clinton's project continued to pace through the Bush administration. They were, I think, more interested in starting and fighting the war on terror. Donald Rumsfeld was famously, infamously ignorant of, of generals, even even had a lot of apathy and, and antipathy towards uh, generals. And so he didn't pay much attention to how they were formed and who who was serving in those 
those ranks of responsibility. Uh, and certainly President Obama, like he did with much of the federal government, picked uh, picked the the mantle up from Bill Clinton and accelerated the change. And I think, you know, some could say this, the, our, our fate, uh, at least our interim fate was sealed when he uh, changed the law to allow women to serve in all combat roles on, without restriction in all branches of the military. To me, that was the ultimate acknowledgement that the military exists as an institution for self-actualization that is devoid from the realities of physical life and ground combat. Um, and, you know, that, that's continued. And I think we'll talk about a few more ways. But uh, suffice to say, uh, I don't know that the Trump administration reversed course at all. So can you lay out for me at this point, how exactly does the military hierarchy work in terms of selection and promotion? Uh, because like any system, I think I think that is as explanatory as anything for uh, why we've ended up where we are today. At the beginning, it starts with showing up to work on time, making sure you shave your face in the morning, which I've stopped doing, <laughs> and being a credible leader to soldiers of a very different walk of life. And, you know, that's all well and good. But the, the important principle is, is your boss, another military officer chooses you. And ultimately, you know, you, uh, another military officer chooses your boss. And so, you know, if I'm a, a an officer with two years of experience, typically I'm being evaluated by an officer with 20 years of experience. Uh, and, and obviously that's a that's a big uh, difference, but that's the. That's the importance on which the military places kind of seniority when choosing the next generation of leaders. But ultimately, uh, and, I, and I should say, every officer promotion, even from second lieutenant to first lieutenant, is a promotion that is technically approved by Congress, by an act of Congress. That becomes more formal when we start talking about adding stars to your uniform and it's generals and admirals who who are being selected and promoted, uh, where each general or admiral of any rank from one star to four star uh, technically receives a vote by Congress. And for for three and four star generals, all of those are assigned to a specific job. For example, that a four star general is promoted to command uh, European command, the, th the European theater of operations. Previously, you know, that's not always the case for one and two star officers uh, where they're just promoted, given responsibility, but not necessarily an explicit job. Uh, but nonetheless, they're they're chosen by Congress. I, I, I won't necessarily uh, say this with personal knowledge, but you know, many would say that it becomes as much of a political game uh, as anything when you start thinking about being a general uh, or a flag officer, as they say, because it is about your ability to fulfill the mission of of the U.S. military. But what, what I'm not saying is uh, you're not necessarily selected because you're going to do what your civilian officials tell you to do. And I think that's something that's kind of uh, gone awry here is we've lost a sense of accountability between genuine military leadership or, or genuine civilian leadership of a military uh, that is you know constitutionally bound, at least, to do what civilians tell them to do can you lay out the uh pipeline timeline um you know someone who's becoming a general today when do they first enter the service because I, I again i just think at, at each of these moments in time these selection criteria have and, and and promotion pressures have mutated and changed over time and so in some cases i feel like 
the cake that's coming out of the oven today was first put in, you know, X number of years ago. And, and what does that tell us about about why we might be getting the results that we're getting today? It certainly is. And in line of the the timeline that I, I explained about kind of the revolution of military personnel management, the 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 generals, the people who are up for consideration for general officer for the first time in their careers today were probably second lieutenants, you know, first time officers in 1995 or 1996, you know, 27 to 28 years in service and you get your first look. So this is the general. fruits of the Clinton administration. Right, exactly. We're starting to see it. And um, we, you know, President Biden and Secretary Austin changed the military policy earlier this year to allow um taxpayer dollars, defense department money to pay for travel and abortion related services for service members and their, their dependents. Uh, you know, whereas 30 over, you know, about 30 years ago, we saw letters of resignation, supposed moral outrage on a genuine moral issue. That being homosexual serving in the military, you know, we didn't see any letters of resignation earlier this year in 2023. And perhaps that's just one sign of how far we've come. I'm curious about what this looked like prior to the Clinton years. And, you know, you had uh, MacArthur famously, you know, saying that we needed to like drop a nuke on China. You had the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, you know, uh, while JFK was president, um, uh, you know, saying that we need, needed to invade Cuba. Uh, it seems to be to me that there's a, a frequently a bit of a disconnect in what, you know, uh, military officers think uh, is appropriate, or at least there used to be, and and what you know, civilians, presidents, uh, uh, think are appropriate. What what kind of class did did these people come from previously? How were they uh, motivated to make decisions, and that sort of thing? You you hit well on it, Nick. That there's always been this kind of impetus for professional military officers to impose their will on the foreign policy decisions of administration, and that kind of had troubling manifestations during President Kennedy's administration. Uh, and, and you know, honestly, I think if you're looking for a book on just how bad this can get, H.R. McMaster, um, you know, wrote a, wrote a really great doctoral thesis uh, explaining exactly this. Um, you know, his book called Dereliction of Duty is a really kind of excellent tome on, on how military officers fail uh, their duty to serve civilian leaders. But what I, the, the change that I want to highlight, kind of starting, you know, truly starting with the end of World War II uh, and then cementing itself in the years before Vietnam, was the transition from our military as one of citizen soldiers to a professional military class that existed as an institution of itself, regardless of whether the military was at war. You can't call our army anymore, one of citizen soldiers. They are professional soldiers. And, you know, even when, when you serve, when I served, I, I lived to uphold a profession of arms that was, was, a, you know, on the surface, very positive and, and worthy, but actually transformational based on how the military was founded when our country was founded and even how our military fought some of its greatest successes, you know, if, if that's how you're going to view World War II. Korea, and again, by, by Vietnam, that had changed to a permanent standing army that existed as an institution to itself, unto itself. And what we've seen is kind of the, the authority, the cultural uh, adoration and respect, and the budget uh, that has come to accompany 
that permanent military uh, and and a, a permanent officer class that serves that military, I think oftentimes and in, with increasing independence and even defiance of the civilian leaders that it's, you know, that it's obligated to serve, you know, and I'll, I'll just kind of one aside, although it's perhaps not worth a, a whole segment that, you know, this is why it is so problematic that General Mattis went from wearing a Marine Corps uniform to being the Secretary of Defense, why Lloyd Austin spent a few years on the board of Raytheon and then served as the civilian yeah, secretary. I, I was going to ask about this, like the waiver of who can serve as Secretary of Defense. I mean, how many times has it been used now in the 2000s? Four times at least, right? Like I think Powell, so, yeah. Mattis, Kelly. Well, Kelly was, was Kelly's made chief, chief of staff. staff. Um, um, but like the the dereliction of civilian leaders of authorities relating to our national security to the permanent military class. I mean, I think is one of the great stories of our time. And then you have this this class of people that people have invested a lot of authority and credibility in that are simultaneously being corrupted through all these trends that you're talking about in the military chain of command. Um, it just seems like all of these problems are coming home to roost in a big way. And our ability to seriously assess military leaders is, has, has never been as weak as it is now. Right. And I think there's a a vein here that is worth telling uh, based on who we make our heroes. You know, in the Civil War, one of the uh, one of my favorite heroes is Joshua Chamberlain, who is a, a colonel in the Union Army, uh, who was a college professor in Maine. And he he led this famous counterattack on the south southern flank of the Union defense on the second day of Gettysburg that, you know, likely saved saved the war in the Union's favor. But he was he was famous because he was a he was a professor and he was there leading citizen soldiers kind of despite all odds. Uh, who was our hero of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war? It was David Petraeus, a professional soldier, but one who had gotten all the credentials and the accolades that we uh, deemed to be uh, distinguishing for civilians. Mm -hmm. He had a PhD from Princeton, I think. You know, he 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 wrote books. He uh, you know, had his own uh, his own foray with a biographer and classified secrets, uh, but he was a man worthy of the utmost distinction. And mm -hmm. you know, he was, I think, given one of those waivers to lead the CIA, and and is uh, has used his his uniform as a professional soldier um, beyond anything else to kind of leverage foreign policy uh, comments and um, and opinions that have some status. Yeah. Uh, but in, in reality, we should always be looking to the people who are theoretically here to represent us as the ones dictating uh, those, those um, you know, those left and right limits. And then it's the military's job to fulfill them. And, uh, you know, I'll say that in, in response, the military has typically been given a lot of leeway for governing themselves. Yeah. Right. They've, they've, um, you know, we've entrusted the chain of command to deal with matters of discipline. Adultery is still uh, illegal under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, right? It'd be, you know, it'd be wonderful if our society reflected that. But you know, the, the point is—is <laughs> is that actually enforced? It is. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to prove sometimes, but uh, it is enforced, and and for good reason. Um, you know, but but the point is that there is there should have been this agreement. 
that the military is an institution set apart for itself to govern itself so it can uh, execute really dangerous tasks when civilian leaders tell them what to do. What we've found, and, and again, I think a huge turning point was, was uh, you know, Barack Obama's rule change to allow women to serve in combat roles, uh, is, is we've, we've started to see the military as an institution that should reflect America in some way. And I, I think that's how a lot of disastrous consequences for civil military relations and the credibility of the institution. A related trend to the uh, elevation of authority of military leaders into political commentators, essentially, is is uh, their elevation into sort of self-help gurus as well. I'm curious if you have any any takes on like the seal bro phenomenon um, of writing self-help books and like selling ads on podcasts and that kind of thing. I mean, what's going on there? Um, it seems to have only proliferated in the last decade. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a uh, it should say something about Navy SEALs um, <laughs> first and foremost. But in, you know, in all seriousness, I I do think that perhaps kind of speaks at the the broader cultural trend that, um, you know, guys, let's talk. You know, men grew up uh, probably around the time you oh, the three of us grew up without much inclination for you know physical uh, vigor and suffering unless we really sought it out. And I think you get to your thirties or, you know, maybe your forties and you realized that you've sat at a desk all your life, whether in public school or in a consulting company, and you want to taste, we we call it tasting the rainbow, uh, when, you know, we are in a particularly arduous training exercise and there's a market for people who have done that. And it's, it's a market to read their books, to <laughs> go through their physical training programs and to, you know, suffer just like the SEALs did. Um, yeah, I will say the interesting thing about BUDS, which is the Navy no, Navy SEALs uh, kind of p- pinnacle training program, is that um, you always get at least three meals a day during BUDS, <laughs> um, which well, which wasn't always the case during Army Ranger School. Um, but perhaps that's another podcast, you know, so I, I just think it's it's the part of this, this valorization of 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 the military. I think it's it's warranted in some cases. I, I you know, we uh, you guys know better than me, but you meet a lot of young men around this town who have done nothing but come from their suburban upbringing and think that the, you know, the biggest stress in their life is waking up at 9 a.m. for Sunday brunch. And I think ideally the military as an institution should exist for for men to sharpen themselves, to learn how to suffer and to do something with their 20s. Mm-hmm. And it's it, to me, it's kind of become sad that, it, uh, you know, conservatives, at least, I think, have have a lot of reason to wonder if it can be that institution where uh, their sons can serve with distinction and also serve a cause that matters and is just. Isn't what- that intention with what you said earlier though that the military should not be a tool of self-actualization you well, right but i think the reason that it's valuable or that it can be valuable is that the military is a place where you subjugate your interests to the the collective needs of your unit um where you give up food and sleep if you're in the army uh to 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 better yourself and to be a part to be a small part of a team that is oriented on a, a collective mission that hopefully matters and hopefully is just um and I, again you know i think i think some of that um some of that's coming into into question what did uh generals used to do 
like after they retired um because you know now they get to be on the board of raytheon and, and write these self-help books but what did they used to do I, I i'm not exactly sure i think you know university professorships were all, all were often very common um you know, Dwight Eisenhower ran for president. And again, that was kind of a sea change as far as I'm concerned. But even he wasn't the first, of course. Um, th- there, There is something uh, that's that's changed here uh, where, you know, you, you become this, this armchair expert for political and foreign policy commentary that I, I don't know has always uh, has always been around. But, you know, I, I think, you know, if uh, if you if you're a general who who retired, you you saw yourself as kind of a statesman meant to be apart from the political calculus of of that day and age and the, the the really scary thing is i think that's starting to change while you're in uniform is that there's some justification or some need that uh senior military officers get to be uh you know arbiters of political right and wrong while they're in military while they're in the uniform and that's that's troubling and one of the primary examples of such a thing is one Mark Milley, who will be leaving soon. Um, tell us why Mark Milley is so awful. I think I think it's something that's generally understood on the right of center, but but from the informed perspective that you have, I would love to hear some of the most perfidious examples of the things he's done. You know, I don't I don't know that I have uh, a unique insight into why he has uniquely compromised the institution of the military. But if you're even to believe kind of half of the reporting that's come out about his, his role during the last year, of the Trump administration, uh, you are to believe that there was that the highest ranking military officer uh, in our land sought an independent operating ability to affect foreign policy and domestic policy decision-making in the way that he sought uh, was appropriate, not based on what his boss, Donald Trump at the time, told him uh, to do. And, you know, kind of it changes by the day with with President Trump's recent indictment and, uh, you know, plans for uh, for war with different countries. And, you know, uh, what what exactly was was General Milley trying to communicate to the Chinese when uh, he wanted to warn them of, of President Trump's supposed instability? Can, um, can, can you tease out that story? Because that to me was the biggest example of a discrepancy between the grave reality of something that happened versus how little media coverage it got in the last several years. Uh, basically, in Jan- you know early early twenty twenty one January, I think even before January sixth, um, but certainly after General Milley had communications with his Chinese counterparts, uh, that as the reporting would lead us to indicate, um, built a back channel in the event of a military crisis with China. Um, so, you know, it, if you take things at face value, General Milley was worried President Trump would act rashly um, and order military action against China. And he wanted there to be an off switch to deload tension so that wouldn't reach its fullest conclusion. Even if you take that story at face value. That's a that's a bit of treason right there. Well, right. And it, it, <laughs> it, it signifies that a, a senior military officer, the most senior military officer, wanted to act independent of the president and the rest of the 
you know, military apparatus, the intelligence community uh, to 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 exercise foreign policy as he saw fit. So that that's not very norms of him. Well, in, in, no, I, I mean, to say the least, it's not. And this this is, I think, a good distinction between that that everyone should understand about senior military officers, especially the the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So all the service chiefs, the four star generals who lead the Army, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, uh, and then the chairman, uh, Mark Milley, in this case. They don't have any operational control over any soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. They serve as principal advisors to the president, but then as as chiefs responsible for the readiness and resourcing of their components of the armed services. But those men, those chair, those the joint chiefs will never tell a soldier what to do. They'll never tell a, a boat to go somewhere. Who does? Uh, so, I mean, ultimately, it's the president, mm-hmm. it's the secretary of defense, and then it is uh, combatant, what are called combatant command commanders, who typically have geographic or, or operational responsibilities uh, into which certain components this fall. This PACOM, CENTCOM. Exactly. Like, you know. Right. And so, um, you know, the, the PACOM commander, Pacific Command commander, if there were a conflict in the Pacific, would have ultimate operational control over which fleet of destroyers, you know, sailed sailed the Taiwan. So, so why did the Joint Chiefs exist? They exist for advice and uh, counsel to the president. Yeah, it is the choice. Uh, you know, I would go on missions to kill or capture the leadership of ISIS in Iraq. And so typically for our missions, the, the Joint Chiefs, um, and maybe even someone they delegate, would recommend or give options to the president to do so with a raid of of army rangers or a airstrike an airstrike right and they give him those military options they give him the 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 potential consequences of each and perhaps a recommendation but it is just that it's advice and and they they have responsibility to make sure that they, that that things are in order um for either option to be carried out to success but they are not independent actors who make that decision themselves so did Millie ever face any i mean i know the answer to this, but maybe you can talk about why uh, ever face any consequences for this. I don't think so. He, uh, you know, as, as Rob alluded to, he's leaving his role as chairman of the Joint Chiefs kind of after the normal three or four year course of uh, or the normal three or four year tour of duty. He's received some pressure from Congress, but certainly no punitive action that would formally suggest he's done anything wrong internal to military hierarchy is serving on the joint chiefs and then ultimately being the chairman of the joint chiefs is that widely considered like the most prestigious job in the military or is there kind of offshoot branches where like no paycom sencom like there's a case to be made that that's the most prestigious job or because because i think it's relevant because it it indicates where which which way the prestige flows and and that has implications for for what kinds of people seek out what kinds of roles probably on average i imagine it would be considered most prestigious by by most senior military officers uh but that that's not universal you know for example when when at the afghanistan war was still hot the the four star in command of forces in afghanistan was probably one of the most desired positions, if not the most, because you had operational control of soldiers at war. And that's and that was our most active. War. Right, exactly. And and that was, at the time, that was a four star command on the level of a PACOM or a CENTCOM. 
with re- direct reporting to the president and the secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it depends. It's, it's a big job. Mm-hmm. I think all else equal, you should consider it the most prestigious. And so there's a new guy they're putting up for it. Tell us about one CQ Brown. Right. General Brown is currently the Air Force Chief of Staff. He was nominated to be that uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff by President Trump. And he was confirmed uh, by the Senate on a vote of 98 to zero. That You know, this came after, um, you know, General Brown spoke very passionately of the Air Force's job to be a force for racial justice after George Floyd died. Um and and again he he was nominated after that um and he you know he said something interesting during his nomination here and he wanted senators to hold him accountable for two things the the readiness of air force aircraft and the readiness of aircraft uh, excuse me of air force pilots uh to be able to get in the air at the drop of a hat in other words you know so if 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 the need arises and the call comes and a, and a pilot needs to get in the cockpit and fly uh what are the chances that that pilot and that that airplane can get in the air and fly capably? Um, typically, the minimum acceptable threshold for readiness for both pilots and aircraft is about 70 percent, meaning seven out of every 10 pilot, uh, aircraft need to be able to get off the ground and fly. Seven out of every 10 pilots need to get in that aircraft and fly it well. Um, both metrics. Are, is that multiplicative? So about half total? No, no, no. That's ind- independent. independent yeah. yeah. And, you know, each of those numbers are not, are uh, below 60 percent, you know, so just about half. of. So he our, failed on his own terms. Right. Exactly. Failed on his own terms. Which is um, why he's getting a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it might have to do with some of the other things I'll get into. Yeah. But, um, well, let's just let's just lay it out there. He you know, he is, um, a, I think, a political officer. He he has seen it. He has stated countless times that he sees it as his job to make uh, DEI part of the Air Force's DNA. Um, he signed a memo in, on August 9th of 2022 with the Space Force leadership and with the Secretary of the Air Force, you know, obviously all Biden appointees, uh, that established racial and gender quotas for the Air Force Officer Corps. Now, even if you're someone who thinks that diversity goals are part of military personnel uh, policy, you would think that racial quotas uh, to to even dictate to the fact that uh, white men should only make up 43% of Air Force officers, whereas right now white men make up uh, about 60% of Air Force officers. You would think that'd be a bridge too far, but it's kind of come with shocking, um, you know, shocking silence as that's become policy for the Air Force. Uh, you know, uh, he... Uh, just just six weeks ago in front of the House Armed Services Committee, he vigorously and with a straight face defended the Air Force Academy's ban on the offensive terms mother and father and uh, was was, you know, insistent that that was part of what made a cohesive, inclusive team. Um, you know, they, they, there's been a, something interesting that happened at Air Force Flight School along the way. There, there's not necessarily evidence yet that this is continuing, but at one point the Air Force wasn't happy with the the diversity of the of the uh, pilots of fighters and bombers. You know, so think the F-18, the B-2, kind of the the quintessential Air Force aircraft um, were being flown in the Air Force's eyes by too many white men, and so the Air Force uh, created a pilot program. 
where Air Force class, Air Force flight school classes were kind of the normal demographic breakdown of the country, or, or the normal, the tip, I should say, the typical demographic breakdown of a flight school class, you know, 60 plus percent white men uh, and on down. Uh, and replaced that class with something they called America's class, which directly reflected the racial and gender demographics of the nation. They they had to stop that those flight school classes because those were not producing enough pi- enough qualified pilots to fly the most complicated and important aircraft in the Air, in the Air Force arsenal. But again, this was a program directed from Air Force leadership. Uh, and, you know, so, so you can take all of this into into account with General Brown. And maybe if if all was well, uh, we'd have to just kind of hold our noses and, and vote yes and support support his nomination to replace Mark Milley. But something is is clearly wrong. You know, one one last <laughs> vignette uh, from from December of last year to May of this past year, all B-2 bombers uh, which are kind of the bat wing, really sleek looking aircraft, are only nuclear, excuse me, I always get this wrong, are only stealth capable nuclear bomber. They All of those were grounded, meaning they weren't allowed to fly um, for the first time in the history of that platform's existence. Uh, you know, they're up in the air now. I think I saw them at an air show on online the other day. Why were they grounded? But we don't know. And, and uh, you know, supposedly there was an accident, but I think it has to do perhaps with the fact that the Air Force also released uh, in 2022, the statistic that Air Force bomber pilots, the ones with really long missions and, and um, you know, supposedly intense training requirements, only fly 7.1 hours per month. You know, I think a lot of Delta pilots will surpass that gotta create more time for diversity trainings will well well that's 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 the question what else are they doing you know i had i had an old uh friend of mine uh text me from his four-hour pride month training uh Mm. at a base in louisiana the other day what does a pride month training entail i hope it's not practicum (laughs) well it it entails the insistence that someone tolerate all viewpoints and all Uh, lifestyles um I, i wonder if that includes traditional uh, traditional Catholics, but I, I don't, I don't want to ask, uh, in some level. So, you know, all, my point is all is, all is not well, but I think the scariest thing is, I don't know if there's a vote against general Brown a single in one. the Senate. I don't know if there's a single one. I'm hoping someone will be willing to ask him a hard question with, with all of the evidence, you know, that I think can, can upset defense hawks. I think can, it can upset culture warriors. I'm, I'm wondering if that's enough to get someone to ask him a hard question during his Senate hearing. Um, but we, we should assume that he's going to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, even with all what, of this. What, what would it take? I mean, so it's, is it a 60 vote threshold for him to get confirmed? I don't think so. Okay. I, I, you know, I, um, but I, I'm not a whiz on Senate procedure. Perhaps there is a way where that is the threshold. But, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, I think it's a simple majority mm-hmm. confirmation vote, much yeah. like judges are. Okay. Uh, So so what I mean, this seems to be a a classical case of failing upward. uh, But but what what would we need to look for in somebody to lead the Air Force in in a future conservative administration? Um, Obviously, hopefully flying more than seven hours per month. Uh, uh, But but what can be done to improve readiness and 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 get rid of a lot of these like quotas, uh, gender trainings, you know, that sort of thing. 
Well, perhaps a litmus test is just, the, you know, is yeah. the first step. I think we need, we need uh, uniform military officers who are willing to get rid of diversity, any instance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in uh, military leadership. I think we need military officers who are uh, willing to uh, rid ourselves of the belief that the military exists as an institution uh, for, you know, every walk of life. Uh it's not, you know, if it, one other frustration I have, you know, I think every Republican presidential candidate, even the quote unquote moderate ones are, are, are justifiably upset over the possibility that an American high school girl might one day run the 400 meter dash against a boy. But no one seems to be upset about the fact that that same high school girl, when she turns 18, will be able to sign up and jump into an infantry trench line and fight and die, you know, uh, uh, under the same conditions as men as a soldier or as a Marine. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can recover a little bit of that cultural indignation over the roles of men and women in our society and in our military, because the, I, I don't think the numbers lie, you know, every service component except the Marine Corps will miss recruiting goals for the second year in a row. Uh, Why do you think that's year. happening? I think it's a few reasons. I I do think that 20 years of the war on terror uh, has given the kinds of people who typically sent their sons to fight those wars the sense that their military service is disconnected from the interests of the American people. And that is, I think, this fundamental mistrust that we have to solve. And I I don't know if that will be able to happen in another administration. Um, but I think the second the second kind of bucket of reasons is a fear or a distrust of politicized military leadership. You know, the army uh, in 2021 and 2022 leaned hardest into um, appealing to, you know, folks of different lifestyles. You know, they ran ads, hopefully infamously, but maybe famously, uh, on the soldiers who had two moms and how <laughs> how the army was the place for them and and the army missed recruiting goals by at least 25% last year uh and they're going to do so by at least that much again and keep in mind the services set their own recruiting goals <laughs> you know, and and they also decide when they tell congress if they've missed those goals or not so, so I, these numbers are worse than they were. I, I i think they're much worse i you know there there are some people who've come forward for our project who give a, who said that they are much much worse um than the services would officially um officially lead on but it the, those together a distrust of our leaders' ability to get us involved in conflicts that genuinely support America and uh, to represent institutions that are at the very least apolitical, much less an institution that can be a bastion for forming good American men uh, for what's to come. Uh, that's that's why this is happening. I don't think it has to do with the economy uh, because we've met recruiting goals in different waves for the last 35 years until now. You were talking earlier about this kind of timeline on which you 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 know make a general frequently takes anywhere between 20 to 40 years from from joining up. Um, it seems like we're a long way away from uh, actually having generals that uh, you know reflect the beliefs. Of the average American, what's what's the framework by which you you kind of build this cadre of people, and is anybody doing that now? Well, we're going to start, and it it's going to take serious kind of multifaceted 
uh, a, a rear a, a rear guard march through the institutions, if you will. That's like, you know a military tactic. Obviously, you know uh, the left has. Uh, picked up Gramsci's mantle and marched through the institutions, including the military. And we have to, we have to work our way back through and seize them ourselves. Um, but I think it starts with the the generals that the next uh, uh, potential conservative administration will promote. Now, um, the, in herein lies kind of an interesting opportunity that Senator T- Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has provided the you know our project at Claremont and hopefully the the conservative movement writ large uh, to genuinely examine and scrutinize the kinds of people that are coming up for promotion in front of the Senate. I think as I mentioned, every military officer, second lieutenant captain, all the way up to four star general, uh, his or his promotion comes through Congress and is approved by Congress. Every general or flag officer gets a, a vote. Nine times out of ten. Um, unless you're becoming a four-star general for a specific job that we talked about, service chief, combo, combo, uh, component command, commander, um, where you get a hearing and a vote, your nomination is approved via unanimous consent. It's it's offered by some senator and no one objects and you get your next star and you, you move on to your next job. Uh, senator Tuberville, in the wake of the Pentagon paying for abortion related services for service members and their dependents decided that he would exercise a hold on all military on all DOD nominations coming forward. And I think that hold has been in place since February 9th of this year. And at this point, over 250 generals and admirals are pending confirmation for their promotion. And and there's no way that that I mean, that that is dispositive for their ability to actually get it because it takes what three days of floor time to actually confirm a nominee one at a time unless you're operating under uc and so he is he has functionally stopped military promotion in his tracks and he deserves a ton of praise for it from my perspective i i think he does too and and to my mind the the cause of of abortion and the pentagon deciding to have a hand and the extermination of babies in the womb is is reason enough to do this and uh, you know, the fact that it's it's energized, I think, to some extent, J.D. Vance to do the same for Department of Justice nominees is 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 hopefully a sign of, of you know, growing gumption, uh, let's say, to make it more um, more more true. But the reason that I'm happy is because it gives me a chance. It gives our project a chance uh, to highlight how not all nominees to be generals or admirals in the military should be treated with, you know, unfailing adoration and respect you know there's a story for you know five weeks ago at this point where the the navy naturally is uh paying sailors to be drag queens mm. uh, as a re- part of a recruiting effort and um the daily caller did this great work it's so over <laughs> <laughs> the daily caller did this great work um it, it, michaela burrow's done a lot of work that i've that i've been highlighting uh without a, giving her credit but she did this great work where um you know this drag queen uh, got his start doing drag shows on the USS Ronald Reagan uh, in 2017. Yeah, mm. uh, you know Donald Trump was president in 2017. So you know, again, like we we have to uh, reclaim kind of the mantle of using personnel to affect the kind of change that we want in the military, just like you you both and and others in the movement are doing so for political appointees. Um, 
You know, but again, he started, he he got his start, this drag queen, I think his name is Poppy Daniels, some some ludicrous stage name as well. Um, he got his start on the USS Ronald Reagan, a nuclear powder craft carrier um, <laughs> with, with really important jobs. And, you know, I got to thinking, I'm like, okay, well, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a Navy, if you're a nuclear powered aircraft carrier commander, an officer in charge of it, you know, you're probably going to be an admiral in three years and then you're going to be up to be promoted again in another three years. And so that that puts us right about now. And so I looked up who the admiral was in charge of the USS Ronald Reagan in 2017 and 2018 when um, when the drag queen got his start. And it turns out that this admiral is held up for promotion by Senator Tommy Tuberville. Um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen to this guy's promotion. You know, he might get his second star and, you know, we'll have to call it good. But isn't this at least a chance uh, to highlight the fact that many of these generals and admirals uh, are political animals seeking uh, a certain worldview uh, to be to be manifest at the the highest ranks of the military? Um, What's this guy's I, name? His name is Admiral Michael Donnelly. Okay. You know, on on paper, he is qualified. He's a pilot. Uh, he's done well at every tour of his command. But when he was commander of an aircraft carrier, he let drag drag shows happen. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not saying he was the one who kind of signed off on and gave approval. But at the very least, I'm hoping that our effort and we're going to we have, you know, some deets on, on a lot more um, will cause a change in calculus for up and coming colonels. Uh, you know, rear admirals uh, who who want to be promoted, um, but who realize that you know their their permission of of degeneracy uh, will be you know disastrous for their careers, and so, ultimately we ha- we know people have to lose their jobs. So all the hacks in D.C. instantly started screeching that this was going to cause the American military to totally collapse, and we're going to lose a war, and m- millions of Americans <laughs> are going to die because this is going on. Can you just explain why why it's not? presumably that cataclysmic that Senator Tuberville has put these holds? Well, I mean, for one thing, I don't know that there's any military policy that prevents, you know, maybe for some of these jobs, I, I don't know authoritatively, but you can often move someone into a into their subsequent role without the according promotion. Um, and that's, that's been, you know, I, I, I imagine that could be the case, mm-hmm. even if that's the policy the military isn't following, uh, following now. And, it, you know, it's not as if, everyone outside of these 250 admirals and generals isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, everyone else is still being evaluated. Everyone else is still theoretically expected to get their flying hours and their time on the range um, to be proficient. Um, I, I haven't really heard a credible reason why, you know, this this scrutiny can't happen. And, you know, that's the other thing. Okay. If, if it is so consequential, yeah, there, I mean, there's a way to do three or four hearings a day on these generals and admirals and get them a vote in front of the Senate. Some like if, if there truly are some who are, um, you know, going to serve in the most important leadership billet in the military, then, Hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm sure I think Senator Tupperville has said that he'd be willing to, you know, get them a vote, a hearing and get them on their happy way. But for some reason there is this desire to maintain a process that, uh, removes the ability of congressional consent, uh, removes the ability of any sort of public scrutiny uh, of these military leaders with awesome responsibility. Uh, and and there's the intense desire to just keep it as fast and seamless as possible. So we don't know what's happening right in front of us. If we take 
your thesis about what's happened to the military hierarchy as a given, what is the threshold at which the quality of these officers falls off a cliff? What level in the military? I, I don't know. Um, it, you know, it's tough to... It's tough to say. And there there are still a lot. I mean, I think the best men that I will ever know are still active duty army officers. Um, the best bosses I've ever had are probably going to be generals in the next few years. Um, but something is clearly happening. Uh, I think, you know, the we have to kind of seize control as current conservatives of those key benchmarks of a professional officer's uh, development timeline. We need to really scrutinize what service academies look like and what people are learning. How many college professors are we hiring to to work there and to teach there? Why can a West Point cadet minor in diversity and inclusion studies? That shouldn't happen. You know, personally, I think we should give some some more consideration to a model like the Brits use where, you know, there's a, a divorce between four year, a four year degree conferring institution and military training. And the four year degree happens separately. And then you spend 18 months to two years at uh, this, you know, place called Sandhurst, uh, where you go through grueling, um, but really excellent military training to serve as an officer. You know, those, those are the kinds of things that we have to, we have to reclaim as um, you know, not not just institutions unto themselves. Like you know, I don't know that there's a greater one than West Point. Um, but in as as marks of formation of the kinds of military officers that we want uh, to be leading troops going forward. There's been this uh, you know pretty big pushback that I've been seeing to um, you know people wanting their children to to serve in the military and that sort of thing. And I think there are a lot of things tied up into it. Um, you know, not just wokeness, but like vaccine mandates and, and, and that sort of thing. What, what would you say to a parent, um, you know, or, or someone who's considering joining the military about, uh, its future and whether you'd recommend yeah. it or not? If your sons were 16 today, what would be the advice? Right. I mean, that's, that is the, you know, the hardest part of this all. Um, I mean, just to, to lay it out there, I obviously, you know, I, I would never want my daughters to serve in the military. I don't think that it's it's the place for women um, to do that. The, you know, but if my son asked me in 17 or 18 years, I would do everything I can to, to prevent him from, from joining. Um, you know, I'll kind of lay cards on the table here. St. Uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux wrote this uh, letter to the Knights Templar uh, around the time of one of the Crusades, I can't remember. And he explained that if your cause is just, you have nothing to fear and, and you can die, you know, in the mantle of Christ with, with, with nothing but eternal life to look forward to. Um, but if your cause is not just, no matter how, how pure your soul, then nothing can save you. And that's my fear. And I, I think about the kinds of conflicts in which I fought and in which I lost friends and I don't know how it would continue going on with my life if I lost my son in the sands of the Middle East or the mud of Eastern Europe, uh, knowing that that's not the cause on which his family's life depends. And, you know, much less the fact that, you know, when I see the rainbow flag flying at the embassies of the Vatican and... And uh, in Germany, I, I don't want him fighting under that flag. Um, 
and you know, it, it, I say that with a lot of remorse because I don't know that there is a better way to become a man than to, than to serve in the military, to be better by, by other men around you. And, to you know, like I said, suffer well, um, but I can figure out another way to get him there and, uh, not worry about the cause for which he might, he might give his life. Will, where can people keep up with everything that the project is doing? Yeah. Look, look for us on, on, uh, Claremont's website. You know, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at William Tebow and we've put out a lot of things there, but you know, there, there are good reporters. Um, Mary Margaret Olhand has done great work with us. Uh, Michaela Bro at the daily caller. And, you know, hopefully you see the manifestations of our work in Congress. Um, but we'll, we'll have to start by showing the American people what's truly at stake here because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the Ukraine and Russia have lost about 300,000 men killed in a, less than a year and a half of war. You know, we, we lost 10,000 brave Americans in 20 years of conflict. And the concern is, my concern is that a military that's built on social progressivism and DEI is not going to be a military and it's not going to be a culture that can sustain those kinds of losses if America is ever in, in that kind of situation. And if we don't reclaim the military as an institution that can fight for a worthy cause, even if it means that kind of cost, then the future is very dark for America. And so I hope you'll pay attention. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, gents. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I would highly recommend going to dc.claremont.org and keeping close attention to their work. If you're a Hill staffer listening to this, encourage your bosses to actually put some criticism and deep critical analysis on CQ Brown's nomination. We cannot let these things get rubber stamped. Um, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything we have cooking. You can sign up for AM Fridays. You can read Amcanon. You can watch the backlog of this podcast. And you can reach out to us at AmericanMoment.org slash join. People are always shocked when they get a response and I actually meet with them. It's kind of the entire reason we exist. Let's find a way to get you involved. Don't be a couch potato. And as always, be sure to rate and review this podcast five stars only. It really does help us in the rankings. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the bell icon for notifications. Um, the I think we're about to hit two and a half thousand subscribers on YouTube, which is pretty cool. Um, but most of the viewers on there don't actually subscribe. So fix that and do so yourself. And thank you guys, as always, for listening. We will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.